0: banking services provided by green dot bank member fdic only funds and envelopes earn apy apy can change at any time
1: from silicon valley to wall street the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage but what will the next phase of ai adoption look like which companies from big tech to startups will dominate and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie i'm emily chang
2: You're
3: listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
4: The price of a taxi medallion in New York City has plummeted from highs in excess of $1 million in 2013 because of competition from ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft. The New York Court of Appeals will be considering two class actions against the City of New York and the Taxi and Limousine Commission by the buyers of taxi medallions in three public auctions held in 2016 and 2017. The medallion buyers are seeking about half a billion dollars in damages, alleging that immediately after the third auction ended, the TLC allowed tens of thousands of Uber and Lyft cars to flood the market, effectively destroying the value of the medallions they'd sold. My guest is Mark Rifkin, a partner at Wolf Haldenstein, who represents the plaintiffs in these class actions. Mark, start by telling us about the drivers who purchased these medallions at auction and the situation they're in now.
2: Well, most of the medallion buyers are small business people um, who certainly could not afford to absorb the kinds of losses that they suffered. Most of them, if not all of them, took out loans to buy the medallions and the loans were even facilitated by the city before the auctions took place. And now they have to service the debt on those loans, despite the fact that they really can't generate the kind of income they used to be able to generate before Uber and Lyft were allowed to come into the city. Now that Uber and Lyft are there, they can't afford to pay the debt on the medallions. Most of the loans are in default. There have been many, many bankruptcies. And as you may know, personal tragedies have also followed the city's action. Several of the medallion buyers uh, took their own lives because they couldn't face the shame of not being able to pay back the loans they took to buy these medallions. It's just been a tragic episode.
4: Tell us what happened here, sort of your cause of action.
2: So we have sued the city of New York and the TLC for their conduct both in conducting three auctions for taxi medallions, the end of 2013 and early 2014. And then uh, what they did right after the third of those auctions, they sold about a half billion dollars worth of taxi medallions, yellow taxi medallions. And as soon as the auctions were over, they let in tens of thousands of Uber and Lyft vehicles to flood the market with competition for the cabs. And it destroyed the value of the medallions that they had just sold at auction.
4: Are you asserting that this was a deliberate move on their part?
2: Well, whether it's deliberate or not, it it doesn't really matter. There were two problems with what they did. When they conducted the auctions, they provided misleading information to the public in terms of the sales price for medallions, which was inaccurate, and also the trend in the sales of medallions, which was also inaccurate. They sold the medallions, and then they turned around and they they decimated the value of the medallions, which deprived the buyers of the benefit of their bargain. Whether they had a plan to do that before they sold the medallions doesn't really matter. They did after after the sale. That is what we what we allege is a breach of their duty of good faith and fair dealing. They have to let the other side of the contract enjoy the benefit of of the bargain, and they didn't do that.
4: What did the medallion owners pay for the medallions?
2: On average, the medallion buyers paid a little bit over a million dollars per medallion. And that was consistent with the, roughly consistent with the price of the medallions before the auction took place. The city set an upset price that was based on the sale of the medallions before the auctions took place. And then as soon as the auctions happened and the city led Uber and Lyft into the market, the, the market for medallions basically froze. And so now the medallions are worth just a fraction of what they were before if there's even a sale that's not a forced sale, that's not a bankruptcy sale or something else. The buyers lost most of the, of the purchase price they paid.
4: Is it, ju- is it solely because of the Uber and Lyft drivers?
2: That's the only thing that changed from, from before to after. All, everything else about the market stayed the same. If anything, it got better. The economy improved. Uh, ridership, total ridership improved. But the big negative is, whereas the taxi medallions had a you know, had an exclusive right to pick up passengers on city streets before Uber and Lyft showed up, as soon as Uber and Lyft showed up, that exclusivity disappeared. And the medallion prices collapsed as a result.
4: Have you filed two class actions?
2: We did. We, we filed two separate class actions on behalf of purchasers in the different medallion auctions. And um, we, we never did consolidate the two cases, so they've run down parallel tracks since we filed the complaints. But they're essentially the same cases.
4: And what are the specific laws that you're suing under?
2: So there's two claims. One is breach of contract, and that's breach of the city's implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. It's implied in every contract. The city's contracts are no different. And that covenant requires that both parties to the contract act in good faith to let the other side enjoy the benefit of the bargain. So that's one claim. That's a breach of contract claim. And then separately, we're also suing the city under GBL 349 which uh, prohibits unfair competition and false and deceptive conduct. So
4: tell us what the procedural history is, what happened at the various stages below.
2: So I'll mix the two cases together because it really doesn't make that much difference. But essentially what happened is that we were permitted to proceed on uh, certain of our claims. The um, trial court sustained a portion of the complaint and so we were we were proceeding on that basis then the court certified a class of all the medallion buyers and so we were we were prepared to proceed on a class basis the city then won uh, on appeal in the appellate division and the appellate division has entirely dismissed the case and now we asked the court of appeals to hear an appeal, and the Court of Appeals has now granted us that motion, and so we'll be briefing the appeal in the Court of Appeals over the next few months.
4: So why did the appellate division dismiss the
2: complaints? The appellate division ruled first that a disclaimer in the uh, contract that the cab drivers all signed when they bought the medallions, which said that they were not relying on any statements made by the city as to the value of the medallions. That that waiver prohibited the uh, medallion buyers from bringing a breach of contract claim, even though what we allege was the breach of contract did not even take place until after the contracts were signed. So it makes no sense to us how the auction purchasers could agree to waive. Future claims. But nonetheless, that's what the appellate division decided and so dismissed the breach of contract claim on that basis. And then the appellate division also dismissed our GBL 349 claim on the basis that um, we had to follow certain procedures under the municipal code before we could bring a claim under GBL 349, which we say is inconsistent with prior precedent that those claims are not treated under uh, the municipal code. They don't require the kind of notice that a typical municipal claim would require.
4: And the court of appeals doesn't have to take your appeal. It's not an appeal as of right.
2: No, not at all. In fact, uh, statistically, only a very small percentage—fewer than two percent—of uh, of appeals are are granted. Requests uh, for leave to appeal are granted. So, we're excited that the. Court of Appeals recognized the importance of the issues that this case presents, both legally and factually, and, uh, and granted our motion for me to appeal.
4: Is there any implication to be drawn from the fact that the Attorney General, Letitia James, didn't pursue any action on the medallions?
2: No, I think I think the more interesting thing is is the um, all of the public commentary that came out. In the aftermath of um, an investigation that was done by City Council, finding fault with the way the city conducted the medallion auctions and then how they flooded, uh, how the TLC essentially ignored its own rules and flooded the market with uh, Uber and Lyft cars right after the right after the auctions took place.
4: How much money do you think might be involved here?
2: Well, it's it's uh, the, the principal amount that the city earned from the medallions is about 360 million. And then, of course, you have all of the interest that accrues on that over the intervening seven or eight years. So it's a, you know, it's a considerable sum.
4: How fast can this move at this point? You're going to the Court of Appeals. Will it take years?
2: Well, let's let's hope that it moves quickly through the Court of Appeals and we get back to the uh, back to Supreme Court where we can proceed to a trial uh, quickly now that most of the procedural uh, steps are out of the way. But uh, I I would imagine that it'll be at least uh, three to six months before we have a resolution in the court of appeal.
4: What has the city's response been? Has it just been on technical issues or has there been a response to the heart of the charges?
2: Well, the, the city's view is that they can do whatever they want. And uh, the, the buyers of the medallions uh, were responsible for, for, their, for their own problem. How that could be, I don't know. But, but it's not just a technical defense. The city is also denying any, uh, any claim of wrongdoing.
4: Thanks for being on the show, Mark. That's Mark Rifkin of Wolf Haldenstein.
0: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
4: Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum President Joe Biden is outpacing every president since Richard Nixon in confirming circuit court judges. Joining me is Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. Biden's sixth appellate nominee was confirmed. Tell us about Gustavo Gelpe.
3: Well, he was a district judge in Puerto Rico who was elevated by Biden. Actually, George W. Bush appointed him to the district bench. He served for many years there and uh, now has been confirmed for the First Circuit as the second person from Puerto Rico to ever be confirmed to that court.
4: Is there a so-called Puerto Rico seat on the First Circuit?
3: Well, I guess you could say that, but only the last two named from Puerto Rico are the people who have sat on the First Circuit. So you could say that, but we'll see in the future what happens. It's a very small court, only six judges, the smallest of the appeals courts in the U.S.
4: Gelby was confirmed by a bipartisan vote. You had three Republican senators supporting him, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Was he less controversial than some of the other nominees where the vote was much closer? Or
3: Well, maybe. But those three you just named have been voting for a number of the Biden nominees, Uh, and so that isn't surprising. And I think um, the Republican senators on the Judiciary Committee were very um, aggressive about certain issues. Um, For example, he had written a book about the Insular Cases And they asked a number of questions about those in terms of treatment of territories and the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court 100 years ago. But he did get those three votes, as have a number, uh, uh, especially the district nominees so far. Uh, Those three and a few others have voted for uh, Democrats. But there's been a lot of lockstep voting on both sides of the aisle.
4: Gelpie has experience as a federal public defender, and five of Biden's six confirmed appeals court judges have that experience as a public defender. Explain why that's unusual on the bench and why it's important.
3: Well, before those people were confirmed, there were only three uh, people on the federal appeals courts who had that type of experience. And one of Biden's foremost pledges in appointing judges was to uh, name more people who had uh, federal public defender, state public defender experience, uh, as well as uh, people who had other experiences apart from being prosecutors or people who came from big firms. And he's kept that pledge. And this is what you're seeing. Uh, but it's really extraordinary, the experiential diversity, especially in terms of people who've been federal public defenders.
4: Yeah, that's the same number of former public defenders that President Obama appointed to the circuit court in his two terms. So that just shows a comparison. Now, I want to turn to some of the hearings for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. But The hot-button issue of transgender bathroom access came up in the hearings for a nominee to the San Francisco based Court of Appeals, Holly Thomas.
3: Well, uh, Senators Cruz and Holly uh, used um, an incident that uh, allegedly happened in Loudoun County in Virginia to say that there were concerns about people using the bathroom uh, uh, of their gender identity, and uh, then criticizing Holly Thomas for uh, representing transgender people in high-profile cases. It's not clear at all exactly the nature of what happened in in Loudoun County, um, but they were vociferous in their opposition to her, uh, and she basically said, this is the first I've heard of it. And a lot of it hasn't been verified, according to, I think, major news outlets, uh, about exactly what did happen. But they um, used that as a reason to attack her, and she said she wasn't aware, aware of this, and she also defended uh, her positions uh, you know, on behalf of her clients.
4: Has any appellate court at this point ruled that transgender bathrooms are unconstitutional or anything like that?
3: I don't think so. (laughs) But uh, it's enough of an issue that they can make to attack her. And that's exactly what they did. And it seems not fair because she's representing her clients to the best of her ability in the cases they were criticizing. And so she said that I think otherwise she had a relatively smooth hearing.
4: So another nominee to the Ninth Circuit, Oregon labor lawyer Jennifer Sung, and her criticism of Brett Kavanaugh came under fire.
3: Well, she was criticized, again vigorously, by the same members of the committee on the GOP side because she had signed a letter as had, I think, a 1,000 or so other Yale Law School grads written to the Yale Law School to criticize Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. But she admitted that there was overheated rhetoric in the letter. Uh, And then Republicans tried to say that that shows that she wouldn't have judicial temperament by signing the letter. And so she received a 10 to 10 vote, which means that Majority Leader Schumer will have to discharge her from committee, and she's likely to have a close vote, but she will ultimately be confirmed by the Senate.
4: She's not the first nominee, is she, that had a 10-to-10 vote and Schumer had to advance?
3: Yes, but the others, she's the first judicial nominee. There were, uh, as you remember, Vanita Gupta for uh, associate attorney general and Kristen Clark for uh, assistant attorney general for the Civil Rights Division. Both were in that situation, but they both were ultimately confirmed.
4: The vote against her was the first no vote for Senator Lindsey Graham on a Biden judicial nominee in committee. Does that stand out?
3: Well, it does because I think he has reverted to the position he used to take, and that is, uh, unless he is vehemently opposed to someone, he's willing to give the president the benefit of the doubt in nominating people the president thinks are qualified. And so it was a departure from his other vote. Sometimes he's passed, which still allows someone to go through because then it's not a tie vote. And I think he's done that with some of the other appellate nominees. For most of the district nominees, he's voted yes.
4: The committee advanced Vermont Supreme Court Justice Beth Robinson's nomination to the Second Circuit. What else can you tell us about her?
3: She is an historic appointment, if confirmed, because she would be the first LGBTQ individual to serve on a U.S. Court of Appeals. And she's very well qualified. She is presently on the Vermont Supreme Court, I think has been there for a decade, and litigated some critical uh, cases involving LGBTQ rights and is highly respected in Vermont and around the country.
4: The Senate voted 52 to 45 to confirm Tara Lynn to the District Court for Western Washington. And she'll be making some firsts as well.
3: Yes, yeah, she's the first Asian American to be appointed to the Western District, I think to any district in Washington state. And she has litigated a number of high-profile cases, especially, I think, involving immigration issues. Um, and so that also fills three of five emergency vacancies in Washington, which shows Biden is recognizing the priority that should be given to them. And then last week, uh, the Senate confirmed Christine O'Hearn. So they have now filled three of six emergency vacancies in New Jersey.
1: We
4: talked before about Second Circuit nominee Myrna Perez and some of the problems that she ran into. Tell us about those and tell us where her nomination stands.
3: Well, uh, the same GOP senators, especially Cruz, said that she was an activist uh, and that that she would carry on uh, that perspective uh, when she was confirmed to the bench. And she vehemently denied that and said, I know the difference between being an advocate and being a judge. I'll decide the cases on the law and the facts. She had a relatively close vote in committee, but on Thursday... Uh, She did have a cloture vote, Uh, I think it was 51-48, and she was confirmed uh, on Monday afternoon. Uh, And so we'll sit on the Second Circuit, and that will be the second nominee. Eunice Lee is the first. So
4: where does this put Biden as far as the pace of judicial nominees and confirmations?
3: Well, I think he has eclipsed Trump. Uh, Using the benchmark of Halloween, I saw some article about that and just saying he's appointed more judges and I think more appellate judges than even Trump did. And so he may be on track to eclipse that record. I think there were a dozen Trump's first year. And after today, then we'll have uh, seven. uh, And then Robinson, Toby Hightens, Jennifer Sung. Uh, would be up. And then Lucy Coe will have a, a vote in committee on Thursday for the Ninth Circuit so, uh, and Holly Thomas after that. So it could well be that he will set uh, that record of most for the first year in the appellate system. And he's confirmed quite a few district uh, nominees with six more slated to have uh, confirmation votes this week, which would bring that total I think something like um, 19 or
4: 20. I want to talk a little bit about Ohio Republican Senator Rob Portman is leaving the Senate and how that puts in jeopardy the more than a decade of bipartisan judicial screening in Ohio. Explain what what we mean by bipartisan judicial screening what the process is.
3: Well, what the senators have done, and they have a split delegation, it's Portman and uh, Sherrod Brown, and they've agreed to use um, merit selection commissions, which recommend people, and they're usually bipartisan with some uh, Democratic appointees and some Republican appointees, and they've done it to keep the bench full in Ohio. So, for example, in the Trump years, um, there were vacancies, but they were filled pretty expeditiously because the two senators worked with the commissions. Uh, They forwarded well-qualified mainstream uh, nominees, and they were easily confirmed because both senators were strongly supportive. And now they're doing the same thing uh, with the three nominees uh, for Ohio vacancies now. I think you see the same thing in Illinois, uh, where... um, uh, Durbin has worked very closely uh, when there was a a Republican from Illinois and and still maintains his commissions and kept his vacancies filled in um, Trump's years. Um, And so uh, it's a good lesson that if you work together and even cooperate with the uh, other party's president, that you can fill your vacancies. We'll see. Uh, I don't think Ohio is a really good test uh, of whether – red state um, vacancies can be filled. I think we'd have to see something like Texas or Idaho or other uh, red states with two Republican home state senators uh, and how they work with the White House. And none of those kinds of states yet have even had a nominee, I believe.
4: I'm surprised that the issue of judicial nominations hasn't been prominent in Senate races Why? Why not? When we see what judicial nominations can do, when we've seen it.
3: Well, I think Biden, again, has not sent people who are very controversial. Um, They have been what he promised, Um, experienced and experiential diversity. Uh, Most of them have had the highest rating from the ABA. Uh, They're not considered controversial, even by some Republicans. And so it shouldn't be surprising that, uh, that they're moving quickly. And they have a, you know, a very uh, well-orchestrated um, machine in the White House and on, uh, in the Senate to move nominees uh, through. And so there hasn't been much cause to complain about the quality of the nominees, and so we're not hearing a whole lot. Um, I think the administration deserves a lot of credit, as does the Senate, for moving on these well-qualified nominees. Um, and maybe that's a reason why they're, they're not so controversial, um, is that they're excellent people uh, and have the uh, qualifications to be fine judges.
4: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Basso, and you're listening
3: to Bloomberg.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like,